have this feeling. I don't have any data for this one, Ryan, but I have the suspicion that um, people that want to do good in the world oftentimes get overwhelmed with these yeah. stumbling blocks that don't necessarily need to be, you know, a, a full stop. They might be a hiccup or a speed bump, but they don't need to truly stop them from doing whatever that kind of work is. And that's what we've tried to pivot with our center to be able to be enabling for people to be able to do these things as opposed to, you know, gosh, oh, I'd really love to do this. And then they start to scratch the surface and they go, oh man, you know, I, don't, I, I got plenty of other fires to put out. I got a family, I got a job and a half. I have all these other kinds of things. Mm. I'll let somebody else do that. And then they, you know, that's that's sad. That's, that's a loss for some people that can be kind of a wound that they feel like they've not done something they really wanted to do that can make a big difference, you know, to somebody in the world. Those little incremental differences is really how you change the world. Ryan Hartley here, host of the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast. Welcome to the interview sessions where I put my curious questions to inspiring people. If this is the first time that you've pushed play on our podcast, let me just say thank you for taking the time out of your day. You have joined our community. We span 110 countries around the world. And here at Always Better Than Yesterday, we really believe that it is the power of leading with love that will leave people, teams, organizations, and community a little bit better than they were yesterday. I hope that whatever you hear in the next 35 to 40 minutes will inspire you in your heart and in your mind some way. And if, I just really hope that there's at least one thing that you hear that if implemented will absolutely leave you better in some way. These interview sessions are brought to you by our great friends at Web Creation. Head to webcreationgroup.com for stunning websites at sensible prices. Today on episode 132, I am joined by Dr. Chris Stout. Dr. Chris has an incredible bio. He has done some incredible things in this world so far. You can go to Wikipedia, you can check out his bio. But here's the two things that really stand out for me most. He has a heart for humanity, a heart for helping, and he has a mind for psychology. If you've been around the podcast long enough, you know that my background is in psychology. I'm a curious human being. I love learning more about human beings. And, and Dr. Chris has some very, very impressive credentials when it comes to being a psychologist. He is one of a hundred worldwide leaders appointed to the World Economic Forum's Global Leaders of Tomorrow 2000. He joins the likes of Tony Blair, Jodie Foster, Bill Gates, J.K. Rowling and Lance Armstrong. It's an incredible conversation and the most important thing I really hope that you hear is the heart and mind of Dr. Chris. And in doing so, I hope that there's one thing that you feel inspired to implement in your own journey that absolutely will leave you better than you were yesterday. I'm Ryan Hartley. If you want to spend more time in our community, pause this right now and head over to We Are Always Better Than Yesterday on Facebook. Come and join nearly 700 like-hearted, like-minded people from all around the world. And again, thank you for taking uh, part in today. Thank you for pushing play. Thank you for joining us. And I hope that you really enjoy always love my friends
Dr. Chris, welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast. How are you? I'm good, Ryan. Good to be here. Fantastic. So good to have you. Our good friend, our good mutual friend, Deb Crow, put us in, yeah. in contact, and I'm grateful to her for, for this conversation. And um, is just reading over your, your bio, I'm sure you get these comments all the time. It's, it's a case of, wow. Like, do you ever <laughs> sit, sit and look at that bio and look back and go, I've done a lot of things in my lifetime? <laughs> Um, probably in my more narcissistic modes, um, <laughs> I've been going through and actually thinning out, we've, we've moved and downsized and I've been going through a number of old files and archives and things. And it's been a kind of a bittersweet, you know, walk down memory lane to see some of these things. And then also to kind of say, you know, why am I keeping this? You know, no, it, it mattered not, and not to trivialize, you know, some nice thing that happened, but something that happened, you know, 30 years ago, you know, I, I can, I can, you know, I, I can probably get over it now. So, uh, so it's, it's been a, uh, an interesting ride. Sometimes it's good to be sentimental. Are you sentimental? To a fault, probably. <laughs> yeah. It, but as evidenced by this archive of stuff I'm going through right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about you? Very much so. I've got a little wall to my right full of little meaningful things, little, uh, little notes or cards or, or things like that, that really just symbolize uh, impact I'm, i i really i'm really driven by stories of impact and and i love to know that what i do makes a difference and helps people and i think little sentimental things like just up there i have a little look over there and it reminds me every now and again they get back at it keep doing That's what you do nice. best well, you know, our, our mutual friend, Deb, uh, I think does she have, she has like a little box or something, I think, where she keeps those things on her desk. So I, I get it. Those totems can be very powerful, especially, you know, when you're kind of needing that extra little, little boost or you're pushing a deadline or something. So they can, they can have good value to them regardless of how old they are. Yeah. I, um, I've, I've often said that, um, you know, I, I don't think it'd be my successes that inspire people, but it will be my struggles. And I don't know. How do you resonate with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really deep, good question. Um, I think it's the overcoming those struggles that, um, you know, I guess develops a muscle or a confidence in being able to do that. I've, you know, personally, there's not everything has been a success. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's probably more realistic of how things are with people. But the you know, the bouncing back and being able to uh, get back in into whatever it is and have learned from that experience. And, you know, I think a lot of people, myself certainly, um, you know, need quite a few lessons sometimes <laughs> before I, I get the education and the message with it. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's almost like, you know, if you use like a, an athletic metaphor or, or, you know, writing a draft of a paper or anything like that, you know, the, the practice and the struggle, um, you know, I think, probably equate and correlate with the value of whatever that work uh, eventual work is if it does if it does turn out the way that you hope it does mm. you have a huge humanitarian heart where does that come from i i suppose at some level um i, I was raised uh, by a single mom and grandmother and the um yeah we've <laughs> a lot of touch points here so um it, she always was very service oriented um she was uh, very talented in kind of the musical side of things and she was a very spiritual person so she would um, do a lot of things at the church that we went to in the kind of the the uh, the music 
and presentations. Um, she would do volunteer work all over the place, you know, at my school when I was in elementary school, and she would go do musical kinds of things at nursing homes nearby. And it was just sort of a, uh, just kind of like the fabric of who she was. And always, I think, kind of, you know, trying to, to do for others. And, you know, it wasn't like we were necessarily you know, uh, an abundance of resources or anything, but just kind of tapping into the skills that she had. And, and she enjoyed it too. She enjoyed the, the community, I think, that she had with doing that. So uh, and I think that's probably true with humanitarian efforts that, uh, you know, you, you help out a friend, whoever that friend is, you help out another person. And, you know, there's been plenty of times where I feel like coming back from some kind of project or something that I've gained way more than what little bit I was trying to contribute. Mm. I love that. I uh, I too grew up with a, a a single parent. My mum worked several jobs. She was the epitome of uh, hard work ethic and, and optimism. Her mantra was, "It'll be fine," you know, <laughs> "It'll be fine." And I, I thought for so That's long good. that not having a male role model took away something from me in my life. I, I always felt like it took. Away. It's not until I became a parent myself that I realised that it gave me the heart that I had for parenting. It gave me the heart that I had for helping and serving. And how do you look back at that time without that male role model? What's it kind of helped shape in? in your future years? I think it kind of maybe to work backwards. Um, my wife and I have um, two adult adult children now, and I feel like, um, and we, we were uh, married for 10 years prior to having kids and we're both uh, trained as psychologists. And I really felt like having the psychology background, honestly, um, was very helpful to have a greater level of understanding and empathy for developmental kinds of issues, what mm -hmm. capacities kids had, uh, working with kids clinically for 10 years before having my own, um, seeing, you know, learning what, you know, worked and didn't work as a parent, I think, um, thinking about it in the context of just parenting, not, not gender specific. Mm -hmm. As far as father, um, I mean, I think my mom, you know, as, as any, your, your mom probably likely as well too, um, you know, tr tried to do the best she could. Um, she, you know, I think maybe the gender stereotypes of, you know, tossing a ball around or going mm. to a game of some sort or whatever. Um, I never did that. And I never really pined for it mm -hmm. <laughs> personally. <laughs> um, when I was young, I was very heavy. Um, I was not involved in anything remotely athletic. I was very bookish. I was, you know, real into reading and comic books and things like that. And mm -hmm. had a bunch of orthopedic issues. I mean, I had like, you know, these like clodhopper shoes and stuff until I was like 11, 12 years old. Mm -hmm. So, so even, you know, being participating in a sport or a, just the proverbial ball toss in the, in the backyard just wasn't something that was necessarily in the cards for me anyway. So, I, you know, it's sort of like one of those things I, the, in the environment that I grew up in, it was pretty um, culturally mixed and um, not necessarily was it unusual to have a single mom. And, you know, there's just sort of like in my, my childhood, there was just a lot of other stuff going on that I kind of didn't per se really notice that uh, that, that was an absent thing. I mean, my father 
um, lived a thousand miles away and I would see him, you know, once or twice a year for, you know, a few days. So it wasn't like he was totally out of the picture, but it was a much different lifestyle. He was a farmer, grew up in the, uh, on a farm, was born in the house that he lived in. And I was living with my mom in a very urban area uh, in Dallas and, you know, walk to school kind of thing. And so it was just, it was, it was just a very big disconnect and it was so, so different. It wasn't something like, you know, I wasn't, you know, wanting to move from Dallas to go live on a farm, you know, so, so there wasn't a whole lot of extra bonuses or anything mm. like that. So I guess in, in some sense, long, long answer to your question, it, it wasn't necessarily something that I felt like um, I was really missing out on. Mm. Thank you for that. I, um, at the age of 15, fell in love with the topic of psychology. I was absolutely fascinated by these uh, TV documentaries called Wire in the Blood. They were based on books by Val McDermid. Um, and I really loved cr uh, criminal psychology and I wanted uh -huh. to be a criminal profiler. I went off to uni to be a criminal profiler. And it's not until uh -huh. I it's not until I joined the police at 21 that I realized that those jobs very rarely exist. <laughs> mm -hmm. How did you become such a psychologist that you were labeled as an international rock star. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, you know, it honestly, it's um, one of those things, the, the, how that eventually happened was that um, I was invited to be part of the World Economic Forum. And for listeners that may not be super familiar with that, um, it's really, you know, it's, it's, even though the, the word economics or uh, economic is in their title, um, there it's really a lot of um, really impressive people, uh, oftentimes business leaders and world leaders. Um, and then in the late 1990s, they were expanding out into kind of looking at next generations, and they developed something uh, called the Global Leaders for Tomorrow. And it was a very, like the, the, the World Economic Forum, the Global Leaders were also a very eclectic group of folks. There were um, uh, a lot of people that were startup founders. I, you know, I've got to, got to meet a lot of really interesting people. The, the founders of Google were also GLTs and, you know, a number of people that, you know, you can name drop that would sound familiar. Um, we're kind of, we were all, you know, in, in our infancy back, uh, back in those days. And um, I was there because I was involved in the not-for-profit uh, area. And it just, I always, honest to goodness, Ryan, I, I feel like, uh, you know, they got the wrong Chris Stout. <laughs> you know, they, they, they made a mistake somewhere along the lines there. But uh, I was honored to be a part of that. And right around those same times, I was starting to do a lot of more work in the humanitarian sphere. I also had done a stint for a year through the American Psychological Association working at the United Nations. So mm -hmm. it was sort of like this, this patchwork career quilt of doing these different kinds of things and having you know, enough naivete or, or, or gumption to reach out to people and to ask for help and to work on projects. And you know, I was too dumb to know that, oh, this would be outside of a protocol or whatever. So um, ask people for help. And those were very generous people for the mm -hmm. kinds of help that uh, they were able to lend. And, and you know, got to meet a lot of interesting people. And in, in the article that the uh, American Psychological Association wrote about that and, and said that, um, 
uh, you know, it's just sort of like because I was, you know, kind of hanging out with some interesting folks and getting help with some interesting folks. So they they coined that, which I really very humbly, you know, appreciate and happy happy to accept. But uh, it was it was really kind of Mr. Magoo, and I feel like uh, just uh, you know a, a wonderful uh, combination of circumstantial issues that that led to that, and then led to me feeling very responsible that I need to kind of take that mantle and and do things and and continue to kind of up my game. Psychology is obviously the study of human beings and we're so multifaceted. Is there a particular area of psychology that that you've been um, romantically pursuing for your throughout your career? Um, gosh, it's golly. Um, it's really hard. I, I guess there's been focuses periodically um, throughout my career. Like when I first started, um, it was really um, wanting to, you know, work with people uh, yeah. and work with patients and work in clinical settings and situations. My fantasy was when I got into graduate school was that I would have a, an outpatient practice and I would work with adults. And the reality was kind of my first jobs out of graduate school was working with children and families in inpatient settings. So just about the total opposite of that. Um, I always enjoyed um, the scientific aspects of psychology. So um, I was always involved in research studies and projects, even as an undergrad, and I enjoyed writing. So that was good because that helped with getting publications and doing book deals and things like that. Um, and, you know, over those times, there was always kind of, a, I guess the, the, the foundation was really clinical, but um, those, that, that lens, you know, was helpful, like I said, as being a parent and the developmental aspects of clinical. Um, it's been helpful to, you know, to your initial interests, um, like with forensic uh, psychology and, and forensic psychiatry kinds of things and looking at those issues. Um, those are naturally sort of beget themselves to looking at conflict. Um, and you certainly can see conflict in a couple in an individual therapy session. And you can see conflict at a global scale, um, you know, with, uh, you know, in politics or in terrorism or in other kinds of um, things that, that bring that to it. But I, I always kind of feel like, I think in the context of developing relationships that would be part of having a clinical relationship with someone, is um, you know the fundamental um, you know being uh, empathetic, uh, wanting really seeking to understand where the other person is coming from. Mm. I think that's helpful in in all these different kinds of areas. Like you know someone can say, well, how could you, you know, like or how could you tolerate or how could you not be totally against X Y Z. And it's sort of like, well, you know, I, I may have personal biases against something or, or not be for something or think something is bad, but I still try to be empathic and understand, you know, how this could come about. And therefore, if I understand it a little bit better, mm. then maybe there's a, an opportunity for some kind of intervention. If it's clinical, what to do in the clinical circumstance, if it's policy, if it's something more in a political or governmental area. And you've held many... Um exec level positions, particularly around data and research, you know, is that something that, um, is that something you have to really try out or, or do you, do you enjoy the data side of things? Yeah, I, um, I'm pretty nerdy. <laughs> I, yeah, I do okay. like, I do like the yeah, data yeah. part of things. Um, I like to measure things. I like to look at outcomes. Um, when it, yeah. back in the day in the, the mid 1980s, um, there, there really wasn't a whole lot of um, empirical eyeballing, you know, clinical yep. outcomes. Um, and so it was a little bit of 
you know, not necessarily Wild West, but very much open prairie, you know, open territory to be able to do those kinds of things. I was working in a uh, psychiatric uh, healthcare system, and there was a concern that one of the accrediting bodies was going to be looking at outcomes and to say, you know, how how well does your hospital do or your 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 staff at that hospital do? And, um, you know, because as a psychologist, you, you grow up in graduate school learning how to do assessments, but in, in the clinical side, you really couldn't do deep assessments across every single patient in a, in, you know, with a hundred patients in your hospital or something like that. So um, these nice combinations of, of looking at what are good instruments that might be helpful with the treatment process, that might be helpful with looking at outcomes, mm -hmm. and then uh, could be um, aggregated into sample sizes to be able to say, well, what kinds of patients do we do well with? What are areas that we could maybe tweak and do a little bit better job with? Um, put all those kinds of things together in a scientific way with good methodologies and appropriate kinds of statistical analysis. And then you can make some determinations and some judgments and then just sort of rinse and repeat and build upon that. That then um, sort of laid a foundation, myself and hundreds of other you know, people working in, in the outcomes management kind of area over the course of 10 to 15 years, mm -hmm. created a database large enough in the literature, then people could develop something called evidence-based practice treatment mm -hmm. guidelines. And that was very appealing to me. My, my gosh, you, you would appreciate this with your interest in psychology. I think one of the last times I did any kind of overview of, of psychotherapy, there's like 400, it's ridiculous, 450 different flavors and variety of psychotherapeutic treatments. And mm. you kind of can't help but think, well, some are probably better than others. <laughs> you know, sure. Maybe yeah, they're yeah, all yeah. great, but you know, some probably, you know, have a little bit better outcome with the, this kind of patient or yeah. this kind of circumstance. So um, taking that winnowing down all the outcome things, mm. looking at it with a big data kind of approach, mm. and then being able to develop treatment um, guidelines that then you can test and test over time and test with different populations and test with different kinds of levels of expertise of clinicians, you know, bring you to a level of, of much more rigorous um, scientific education for uh, psychologists and, and anybody else that's involved in treatment outcomes or in uh, evidence-based practice. Mm, I can I can massively respect the, the the nerdiness because my and this I am a closet nerd because I don't yeah. try and tell too many people <laughs> I think about you're it. Out of the closet, I yeah. Think you're out of the closet. <laughs> but my 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 final roles within policing before I left um, was the the head of performance evaluation, analysis, research, evidence based policing. See? So um, <laughs> so I, I have a heart for that, and I and I think from my experience, particularly in policing, there's a bias towards action that is great. I love it, but. There is never this, okay, let's evaluate. Did that work? Was that a good value for money? And it's, right. the, it's the outcomes piece, isn't it? We've mm. got these strategies in place. We want to achieve these things. Well, let the good people evaluate what works, what doesn't, so we can do more of what works and less of what doesn't, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's nice to see. I forget, there was a, a former dean of Harvard Medical School said that 50% of what we teach our medical school students is wrong. The problem is we don't know which 50%, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so it's that kind of thing. I think, you know, again, the, the, um, the aspect of, of having, you know, and even in business, you know, it's the proverbial cliche of, you know, what gets measured is what gets managed. Mm -hmm. And I think it's now there's more of a focus on, um, I'm a big advocate of what, what are called patient registries, because in an outcome study, the weakness of oftentimes of outcome studies of, of any stripe, in more recent years, I've been doing outcome studies in sports medicine, and orthopedics, and those or what I call more squishy, like psychiatry and psychology, um, 
don't necessarily have super duper generalizability because in a true empirical study, and especially if you want to get it you know, published in a peer reviewed journal, which is typically everyone's motivation, is that you have to have all these exclusion criteria. Well, I'm studying this age group, which means I'm not studying any other age group. I'm studying these kinds of patients that maybe don't have comorbidities like hypertension or diabetes, which means that whatever I find makes no difference to those hypertension and diabetes diabetes, et cetera. So um, patient registries, like here in the States, uh, there's something called clinicaltrials.gov, and you can register your studies in that. And in my last position, we were able to build two uh, fairly robust, large sample size, like, you know, two and a half million patients, which is, you know, makes me cross-eyed, um, where you can then actually see real world outcomes on standardized measures with real world patients because they were seen in a clinical setting. Everything's de-identified and aggregated because you really don't want it singled out. You want to look at those aggregated numbers. And I, you know, I think tapping those and having those be pretty much generally freely available for the asking, I think will go a long way in, you know, in the, uh, what my kids and, and your child will see in their future in terms of better healthcare. Mm. Yeah, that's important. You were you were a well-read child. You said you read quite a lot, and I've, I've been reading your humanitarian field guide. And in it, oh. there's a section that says that as a ten-year-old, you came across Buckminster Fuller's uh, Nine Chains to the Moon. And there was this one phrase. I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but ephemeralization. Does that oh. sound familiar? Did I yeah. pronounce yeah. that right? That's very good. Yeah, which is the art. Uh, or the science of doing more with less. What has ephemeralization taught you? I think over time, it's become, um, in recent years, almost kind of like a little bit of a mantra. It's, it's become a lifestyle change. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, you, you kind of come from a childhood where there isn't a whole lot and then maybe your fortune starts to change and things start to, you know, go a little bit better and you get a keeping up with the Joneses feel, or you, you know, you get envious and, you know, you want to have this possession or do that sort of thing or whatever, which is all fine and, and great. But, um, I think there's a, you know, maybe a, for some people it's a tipping point for other people. It's a, you know, more healthy realization of their interaction with the world. But um, it's like my wife and I, and, and even our adult children have kind of really adopted more of a, a minimalist kind of perspective um, an appreciation of the things that we have um, and, and not needing to have, you know, multiple millions of the same kinds of things. Mm. Um, there's a certain elegance, I think, that goes with that. I think there's a certain level of stress reduction that goes with that. If there's, you know, less to have to worry about or less to have to fix or less to have to bother with or whatever. And I think when you have that kind of space, it opens up the opportunities to really either you self-identify of what really is important to you. Like, how do you spend your day? Well, how you spend your day is probably on certain kinds of things you just have to do, um, but other kinds of, you know, when it's your time, what is that focus on? You know, is it on your work? Well, what is your work focus? You know, what is that focus? Uh, how, you know, what does that tell you about yourself, your relationship with your friends, your family, your the work that you're doing, the others that are part of that work? Um, you know, Buckminster Fuller was really a, uh, you know, he's kind of one of my heroes. I, I, 
yeah, I love, you know, being able to think about him and talk about him and try and role model after him um, in the sense of, you know, thinking about the, the interaction of things. I mean, I, I don't think necessarily he would have, he, like he called, you know, the earth is spaceship earth, you know, everything that we, we have to, everything we need is if we were like on a spaceship going to another planet, we would need to have on that spaceship. Well, let's consider ourselves on this earth, you know, in our own little spaceship. And you can look at that in the concept of, um, you know, well, would I be wasting something if I was on this spaceship? Would I be creating garbage that I'm going to have to live in in my own spaceship? Would I be, you know, doing something that that out of laziness or dumbness, you know, is going to, you know, uh, come back to haunt me or, you know, create a problem for me or others on this spaceship? And I think that's been a, again, an ethic that's been different uh, that we take a look at. I mean, even like when we've we've done some very minor remodeling um, at the place that we moved into, and it's sort of like I always think twice. Well, how you know, when this, whatever it is that's leaving our house, is there some way that we can mitigate its impact to, can it avoid a landfill? Can it be recycled? Is there someone that could reuse this if it still has a valuable life to it, et cetera? So I think that ephemerization of how people think about themselves, you might call it minimalism, you might call it, you know, conservation, you might call it, you know, uh, environmentalism for some people or whatever. But I think that's that was a very early on um, something that I, I wrestled with and I feel like I really kind of haven't taken it full on until these last couple of years. It, it took me a while to get it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I listened to you on a on a, another podcast with Jeff Vieto, and um, in that podcast interview, you said sometimes it's uh, it is hard to do good in the world. Sometimes, sometimes the way the world is, it makes it hard and difficult for us to do good. Why? Why do you think that is? There are so many um, struggles and difficulties that can be there. Um, the in with that interview with Jeff, you know, we talked about the pivot that our nonprofit uh, had, and and the the learning lesson with that was that um, some people, uh, for whatever reasons, that they've got a friendship, they went on a vacation. I mean, you you pick the reason. There's some kind of something that has spurred someone to want to help somebody else out, and oftentimes they come up to that circumstance where they then want to do something for that person. And let's say they might think they want to start a nonprofit. So they say, well, what do I need to do to start a nonprofit? Isn't that just like doing, you know, anything else, a startup or a, an end of one company or, a, you know, whatever. And it's sort of like, well, no, <laughs> there's in the United States, that's a, you know, a tax identification kind of thing. So you need to fill out you know, some rather arduous kinds of paperwork. You need to submit that uh, to the government. You need to wait, you know, six to 12 to 18 months to sometimes get a no, not a, it's not automatic, yes. You need to incorporate, you need to develop a website, you need to get a board of directors, you need to learn the taxes for a nonprofit are pretty radically different than how an individual or a business might do their taxes. So there's all these parts and parcels and things that just can be just any one of them could be kind of like, I don't want to build a website. I don't want to like, you know, do I, any one of those things. That's not my skill set. My What I really want to do is help these people out that I met or that are friends of friends or whatever to get a paved road so that they can, you know, get their um, uh, produce to a market more quickly or that they can have medical attention, you know, more quickly or that they can have a well with potable water or they can do whatever. It's a one-off project. I don't want to be in the business of 
building wells everywhere. I don't want to be in the construction business and building roads or hospitals or whatever everywhere. I just want to, there's these one, you know, it's like when you have a friend that, you know, that you need to help them fix their roof or whatever, they ask you over, you bring your tools, you fix their roof. And you don't say, oh, by the way, now I own your house because I fixed your roof or you owe me, you know, or, or whatever. There might be some reciprocity with it. Like, hey, if my house needs help or somebody else's house needs help, you go, you know, pay it forward, you go help them. So our goal and the, the aspect was, is that I think a lot, I, I have this feeling that I don't have any data for this one, Ryan, but I have the suspicion that um, people that want to do good in the world oftentimes get overwhelmed with these yeah. stumbling blocks that aren't necessarily, um, that don't necessarily need to be, you know, a, a full stop. They might be a hiccup or a speed bump, but they don't need to truly stop them from doing whatever that kind of work is. And that's what we've tried to pivot with our center to be able to be enabling for people to be able to do these things as opposed to, you know, gosh, oh, I'd really love to do this. And then they start to scratch the surface and they go, oh man, you know, I, don't, I, I got plenty of other fires to put out. I got a family, I got a job and a half. I have all these other kinds of things. Mm. I'll let somebody else do that. And then they, you know, that's, that's sad. That's, that's a loss for some people that can be kind of a wound that they feel like they've not done something they really wanted to do that can make a big difference, you know, to somebody in the world. That's those little incremental differences is really how you change the world. Mm. There's a, there's a quote one liner within the book that says volunteers do not necessarily have the time. They just have the heart. And that was uh, Elizabeth Andrew. And that's a, that's a one liner that I really um, just stood out of the page. You say here uh, in your bio that you are just intent on making a profound difference in the world before you're forcibly removed from it. <laughs> How does that look to you on a day-to-day -day basis at the moment? Well, I probably miss the mark if it's on a day-to-day -day basis, let's say. Yeah, um, you know, there are certain things, I guess, uh, I don't know if this is, I guess it's just part of, you know, kind of who I am, but there's certain kinds of projects that I work on. It's just almost kind of the proverbial cliche morning routine. There's certain kinds of things that I do work on really every day. Um, I just, we launched a, um, a LinkedIn weekly newsletter and I have found that in my, you know, voracious desire to eat and read uh, content that um, a lot of the things are fitting to our, um, to our newsletter. So I sort of, you know, kind of put on this editorial hat and vet the source if it's something that seems legitimate and not fake news or goofy or what have you. And then if it's fitting to the, um, uh, the editorial perspective of that newsletter. So it's those kinds of things that, again, it's, it's small. There, there's no big, uh, fireworks, there's no big ribbon cutting, there's no big, you know, fall de around a lot of these things. I think it's just literally like small incremental brick by brick kinds of things to build. Um, one of the other things that we launched earlier um, this year was a, um, a set of courses. So I had worked pretty much about six months tail end of last year 
uh, kind of putting that together, putting the faculty together and putting the content together and putting a methodology together for that. So a lot of times in my work, it's like intensive head down building stuff, you know, hours and hours a day, frustrating my, my wife who's going, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, okay, take a breath, um, which is good advice because I, I tend sometimes not to do that. Um, and then once it's built, then it's, um, you know, the care and feeding of it. So once we establish a newsletter, then it's the care and feeding of content. Once we establish a training program, then it's managing that and helping spread the word about it. Once it's, you know, mm -hmm. similar to you, you know, myself with doing uh, my own show and podcast of mm -hmm. reading the material of someone's book or getting to, you know, do a deep dive like you very nicely and obviously have about who that person is and what are the questions that come up that I really, I think my audience would like to hear and mm -hmm. I certainly would like to know the answers to. Mm -hmm. So all of those things are little bits and pieces that I feel kind of push the ball further down the road of um, being able to bring, you know, new voices to perhaps someone that listens to the podcast that, you know, hasn't ever heard of this person or never heard of their book. Uh, these other kinds of things that might show up as a LinkedIn influencer piece or, you know, all of these different components and places that um, every day there's probably some little, you know, inch by inch work done on it. But, you know, there's the periodic milestones of a, uh, an article gets published or a uh, podcast gets released or what have you. But it's, you know, there's the, the, the big things, the big splashes kind of just don't exist anymore. It's these more periodic incremental, you know, putting, you know, nose to the grindstone daily, which I know you know all about. Well, you, you know, that's what we're all about here. Always better than yesterday is, is the, is the approach. Sometimes the idea of building a house can overwhelm people. And what you've just said there about the brick by brick, sometimes you, you build more of a creation than you can ever imagine. Sometimes it's just having that balance and Sometimes the big picture vision, big stuff scares people. They see the podcast with 120 interviews and they stop. They don't do the one, you know, they don't mm -hmm. do the two. Mm -hmm. So what does the phrase always better than yesterday mean to you? I, I really like that. Um, it resonates in the context of feeling like sometimes, sometimes you have an off day. Sometimes you make a mistake. Sometimes you really step in it or you, you know, there's, there's some problematic kind of thing that sometimes for me is, you know, self-inflicted, um, you know, inadvertently or, you know, unknowingly. Um, and having the appreciation and giving yourself the space to be able to say, okay, that happened you know, or, or, or something that you had no control over happened, you know, what am I going to do about it today? What am I going to do about it? You know, the next day, um, how can I fix this? I keep back in my morning routine, I keep a little moleskin journal where I track certain kinds of things and they're, they're trivial to anyone else other than me. Mm -hmm. And there'll be those times where I'll get out of bed and I'll go, Oh gosh, I really don't want to do planks today or, you know, whatever the little goofy <laughs> thing is. And I think, you know, but tomorrow, if I don't do this and I look back on it of what I did, what is that current day, I'll be mad at myself, yeah. you know, and it can be those kinds of things to just sort of, I guess it's maybe a, an optimistic accountability, yeah. if you yeah. will. Um, it's the adult and, marshmallow test. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, your psychology is showing there. So exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. And you know, this might come across initially as morbid, but, um, you know, there's um, uh, Kevin Kelly, who is one of the co-founders of Wired, 
talks about um, having, you know, a finite, we all have a finite amount of time in the world. You know, we don't know necessarily how much that is or, or you know, when it's, you know, how close or far away it is. But, you know, kind of when you hit my age, it becomes a little bit more apparent. And, you, you know, they have these calculators that you can say, okay, well, if I think I'm going to live to age 85 or whatever it is, and then you can kind of, you know, plug something in a website and it'll tell you from today until you hit 85 on your birthday, it's X number of days. And he talks about that, I think, also with Stuart Brand and in, in then thinking about what kinds of projects are you going to take on? Because let's say a decent project is going to take a year or it's going to take two years to write a book or it's going to take X years to do a whatever. Or I'm going to do podcasting for three years and then, then I'm done or whatever it might be. And you then start to think about, well, how do I want to spend those days and how can whatever it is that I do select if I've done my due diligence, and thought about it and slept on it and really do whatever process I need to do to commit to something. Um, how can I, you know, hold myself accountable that tomorrow I'm going to do it. I'm going to be better at it. I may, you know, have fits and starts. I may have, you know, be Sisyphus and fall back down the sand hill. But, you know, nevertheless, um, you know, there's an expectation, I think, that gives a certain level of optimism when things mm. are not feeling optimistic organically and gives you an opportunity to, um, you know, kind of, you know, buckle down and, and get back to it. I am very grateful for your time. And there is no way in, in the 35 minutes we've been speaking that I've even scratched the surface <laughs> of your your experience, your heart for helping. Um, I just leave, like to leave some space for anything you would like to particularly share that's on your heart and your mind today that you think that are always better than yesterday community would benefit from hearing from you on. Oh, well, thank you, Ryan. Um, I'm a fan of yours. Uh, I very much appreciated like when you, you know, involve your family and your life. Uh, I think that's very helpful to be able to see and understand. A lot of times in psychology, you know, we learn in graduate school, you know, you need to have boundaries and you really, you know, you don't say much about yourself or what have you. And, and you just, you know, focus on, you know, topics at hand. So, having the space and, and, you know, not being in, in a clinical practice when I'm on a podcast or anything that, uh, that that kind of space is, is good for me. Um, I feel it's growthful to be able to have someone like you, who's very expert at getting, you know, to the point of things and to, you know, ask these kinds of questions that might hopefully give people some benefit or, or help them, you know, think about something maybe a little differently than what they thought about before they heard this episode. And then also just, you know, freely to, um, you know, we're here myself and our center to help people make a difference in the world. Um, whatever ways that we can do that. Um, we are, our website is centerforglobalinitiatives.org. Uh, uh, everything on there is uh, free of charge. We have a virtual library that's downloadable. We've got podcasts and lectures and kind of you name it, it's, it's on there. Um, so I really encourage people to reach out, um, if, you know, feel free, get, get what you need off of there. If there's some question that I can help with, you know, ping me, I'm very accessible um, and be happy to see if I can be of help. Very, very kind of you. I shall make sure all those links and the links to your podcast go in the show notes. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to spend it with us. I wonder whether you could sign us off with one of the uh, 52 ways to save the world. <laughs> Well, for context, um, they, there's 52 cards in a deck, and a few years back, we 
uh, put together 52 ways to change the world. And the idea being that um, on each one of those cards, which I think has actually been reproduced now uh, uh, freely on LinkedIn as an influencer post a while back, that um, if you're curious about what it is, let's say you want to make a difference in the world, but my gosh, the world's a very big place. Where do I start? You grab one of those 52 cards at a random level until you get one that, um, you know, pick from the deck until you get something that resonates with you. On that card, it's going to be a topic. And on the flip side of that card, it's going to be resources to reach out to learn more about that topic and how you can make a difference. And I think, again, Ryan, tip of the hat to you, because I think you make a significant difference in the world with being able to reach out and have this kind of voice. Thank you. Very kind of you, Dr. Chris. Thank you so much. Take care, Ryan. There we go. Episode 132 with Dr. Chris Stout. Thank you for making it to the end. Really grateful that we have been able to share this experience together. I just, at the end of every interview session, I just love to reflect on some of the key standout points. I just love Dr. Chris's heart and mind for helping and psychology and being an international rock star. But that image that he brought to life around Spaceship Earth is really profound. Like, that's just a simple concept, but if only more people considered that as a concept, how would life be different? How would we lead, you know, consciously knowing that our actions and decisions have consequences? I'd love to know what resonates with you. Email me at ryanbhartley at gmail.com. I really insist on it. I'd love to hear from you. And if this is the first time that you've listened to the podcast, you've made it this far, email me. Let me know you're a new listener. Let me know where you're coming from and, and what stood out and resonated with you. We have 131 previous interview sessions. I really hope that there is uh, someone in that list that, that grabs your attention. You want to push play. And um, if you want to connect with me personally, come to Instagram, Ryan B. Hartley. Over on Facebook, over on LinkedIn, wherever you want to connect let's have a great conversation this is a two-way platform i'd love to hear from you i'd love to have a great conversation with you about leadership around psychology and all things making a positive difference in the world i'm ryan hartley your host thank you and i'll speak with you again soon always love my friends